American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. This is Andrea Addis Vasquez of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning, on Monday, the 16th of April, 2012. I'll be interviewing my colleague at ASHP, Ellen Noonan, who recently completed her book, The Strange Career of Porgy and Bess, Race, Culture, and America's Most Famous Opera. We interviewed you a few years ago as you were in the early stages of writing this, uh, History of Porgy and Bess. In that discussion, you described its evolution from novel to play to opera to musical and some of the issues it's raised over the decades. Your soon-to-be-released book will provide a history and also argue that Porgy and Bess provides a unique lens into race and race relations, identity, and representation in 20th century America. So you began researching this topic for your dissertation in the late 1990s, but now your book is being published this fall by UNC Press at the moment of its resurgence in our popular culture, with a revival and reinterpretation by writer Susan Laurie Parks and director Diane Paulus and starring Audra MacDonald. Numerous articles and critiques um, are again bringing the story and some recurring issues to the fore. In this discussion, I'd like to discuss both the production and your upcoming book. You probably always felt that this story and its music would endure, but did you expect this major revival, Ellen? I did not expect to ever see Porgy and Bess back on Broadway. It had gotten into a very comfortable niche in opera companies, both in the United States and around the world, and I thought that was probably where it was going to stay, so this, this is a bit of a surprise. In the last interview with us, you talked about two themes addressed by Porgy and Bess. Um, one was representation, the other access. So I wonder if you could review those themes and tell us, does this Broadway production renew the conversation of these themes? And is it different now? Um, I think there's a lot that's different now. Uh, in the history of uh, Porgy and Porgy and Bess, the question of representation was really one of uh, it being a work that was created by a team of white authors, um, first the novel by DuBose Hayward, then the dramatic play by Hayward and his wife Dorothy, and then finally the opera by Hayward and the Gershwin brothers, George and Ira. And in its earliest years, in the 20s and even into the 1930s, um, it was widely understood by white audiences and critics as being a representative or authentic uh, picture of African-American life in Charleston, South Carolina. Well, African-Americans never saw it that way. Um, they, African-American audiences and critics, understood the play and the opera and even later the movie version as um, really important opportunities for black performers to have um, you know high profile uh, jobs that they otherwise had no access to um, particularly with the opera Porgy and Bess in 1935 that was before the Metropolitan Opera allowed African-American singers um, and so for classically trained singers there were virtually no kind of mainstream professional opportunities so it was a very big deal in terms of access for African Americans, even if it was problematic for many of them in terms of the representation of the characters and the stereotypes that it portrayed. And those issues are a lot less almost to the point of being non-existent um, today. I, I don't get the sense that African-American performers are called upon to justify playing these roles or explain why they play these roles. I haven't seen any press accounts or interviews where they say they were hesitant to take the part and then eventually decided to, which is very common in uh, earlier decades uh, with sort of either in memoirs or 
in interviews at the time, uh, you know, black singers would sometimes express some ambivalence about those parts and about the show. You don't really see that anymore. And in the sort of critical reaction to Porgy and Bess, no one talks about it. And, and this has been true for a long time, actually, since the 70s. No one really talks about it anymore as a, an authentic depiction of black life. Um, and that's certainly nowhere near, no one would even consider that today, I, I don't think. And um, when Susan Laurie Parks, in an interview with Studio 360, she said that she made fixes to the story, um, but said that it would be too simple to say it was a racist play. So she was also addressing representation, obviously, when she looked back at how to rework this. Um, she said she looked at it as a black writer and as a play with holes that needed to be filled in. What are your thoughts about how she did that in her writing, in her editing? How has she reimagined and represented the characters? I think um, she has done a remarkably good job of filling in the holes in the piece. Uh, what was necessary to do that was, in some ways, the kind of converting it into a piece of musical theater rather than a piece of opera, because what's been done to it is a, a great deal of the sung through um, pieces of it that are characteristic of opera have been replaced by spoken dialogue. So. It is indeed a kind of radical transformation of the show, which is not to say the show hasn't gone through such radical transformations before. The version that was done for four years in the 1950s that toured around the United States and around the world was very much a musical theater version of the piece. So it's not like that in and of itself is a first time that that's happened. But by taking out the sung through parts and replacing it with a much more um, kind of sensitive and, and complicated uh, dialogue, she does succeed in, in creating more motivation and more backstory for these characters. And that's something that's, that's accomplished not just through adding this dialogue, but also through many of the staging choices. There are, there's a way in which the original story comes across as sort of a series of episodes. There's a murder and there's people doing drugs and there's, there's a rape scene and it just kind of is on and on and on, but it's very episodic. And what they've done with the dialogue and in the way they've chosen to stage things, these episodes, uh, which are still, you know, key to moving the plot along, but they've given them a kind they've given you a sense, given the audience a sense of what the characters' motivations are in a way that wasn't always there before. So the things don't just kind of drop out of the blue. And that is both dramatically more satisfying for an audience, but it also, I think, gets right to that question of stereotype, that it's, hard, it's a lot harder to look at it and think of African-Americans as being inherently violent or unstable or superstitious if there's a much more richly understood sense of why they're doing what they're doing that's very individual to these characters mm -hmm. rather than some kind of being able to fall back on some racist notion of this characterizes the race as a whole. Right, but sometimes it's, it's just really filling in pieces of the story. So I think that sometimes it was less significant and important in terms of fighting the stereotypes, or, but more also making the story clearer, making, um, making it flow. Yeah, I think that's right. And, but like I said, I think it is more dramatically satisfying if you have a sense of why characters are doing right. it, what they're doing. So, for example, the very first scene in the, in the show is a fight where someone ends up getting killed. 
Um, and the way it's staged, you have a much richer sense of how this fight starts with the two men kind of taunting each other a little bit. So that's where some dialogue is added in a way that helps. You have a, it's it's less clear. It's more clear that the man Crown, the character who kills uh, the other uh, character, is Robbins. It's much clearer in the clearer in the ways that Crown is provoked, not to excuse it, but you know, and and it's just it's a, just a much more kind of rich presentation of that episode that's pretty important to setting things in motion in the plot than in other versions I've seen. And that, like I said, it's a combination of dialogue and staging that, that achieves that. Um, you mentioned earlier, and you, you discussed this in the last interview you did with us, the characters' portrayals being problematic, and, and we were just talking about that. The representation of Af- African-American life largely as drinking, drugging, in the 50s, civil rights leaders in the black community de- debated the merits of this production. And for those actors, as you mentioned, it was it, they took a personal toll and a professional toll right, in, in taking this part. Do you think there's any comparison to that today? Are there any controversies that are existing um, today? No, none at all. And that's, I think that is a kind of remarkable change. Um, for example, when uh, MGM Studios did a movie version of Porgy and Bess in 1959, there was a great deal of controversy over the casting. Sidney Poitier ended up playing the part of Porgy, but was both publicly and privately not at all happy about having been what he felt kind of forced into doing so. And now, as I say, I think Audra McDonald is, you know, arguably the queen of Broadway, like the Broadway performer of her generation. And I think this is a part she actively wanted to take on and make her own. Um, And so it's a very different dynamic. So before we move on to discussing more about your book and what this brings to the um, to the discussion and the table. How has Porgy and Bess been treated by historians previously? Has it been mostly around Gershwin or? Well, um, it's been treated by musicologists. There's certainly musicologists who've written extensively about the music um, and the opera in that way. There is a book from the early 90s called The Life and Times of Porgy and Bess, an American classic, um, which is just more of a kind of straight ahead production history. What I was trying to do was to really bore down very deeply into the racial politics and, and the idea, the ways that ideas about race and access to, to social and political equality changed dramatically from the 20s when this first came to be to our current time and to look really closely at how Porgy and Porgy and Bess was produced and talked about and written about and understood in, its, in these various time periods um, to, to tell us about those changes um, in American ideas about racial equality. Um, and in African-American, so both white American ideas, you know, this sort of slow opening up <clears throat> to the idea of equality and the end of Jim Crow and, and, um, and deeply sort of stereotyped presentations in popular culture, but also a story of African-American um, attitudes about the performing arts and how they related to racial uplift and the political implications of black cultural participation, which is a a really interesting story. And the other thing I wanted to do that uh, no one's ever really done before is look at the history of Charleston, because I realized as I studied Porgy and Bess more and more, there was a very local story there as well, one about, on two levels, on the one sense that Hayward, by creating this this story that became so popular and seen around the world over and over again for de- for decades, 
um, had created a story about Black Charleston, a, a kind of that many people saw and you know, to along a continuum of thinking of it as being authentic and realistic, you know, it was still a story of the history of Black Charleston that was in much wider circulation than anything any historian ever writes. And so I wanted to try to tell a more complicated, more accurate um, story of Black Charleston. The one that Hayward tells is very narrow. And I also wanted to tell the story of how the success of Porgy and Porgy and Bess changed and, and kind of played out in the city of Charleston itself in the city's own um, race relations. And do you want to explain that structure a little bit? Because I think you called them interludes, right? Yeah, I ended up yeah, mm-hmm. adding that material to the... So the, the book is structured with chapters that trace the history of Porgy, starting with the novel in 1925, followed by the 1927 dramatic play on Broadway, and then the first production of the opera in 1935, the 1950s revival of the opera, and then the final chapter is on the um, MGM film, and then the 1976 uh, revival of the opera by the Houston Grand Opera Company. And in between those uh, are the interludes that take us back to Charleston, um, to take us back to that local story and tell it, starting from you know the earliest years and the ways in which the history of 17th and 18th century and 19th century Charleston shaped the early 20th period that Hayward sets his story in. And then moving forward in time through the 20th century, how the city kind of embraces the Porgy story, uses it for tourism promotion, but and then also it kind of comes into conflict with the emerging civil rights activism in the city. A few minutes ago, you referred to memoirs and interviews done with actors, and you also just mentioned looking more deeply at Charleston. Can you talk a bit more about the kinds of evidence you found in your research and where it led you? I relied to a great extent on the African-American press, on black newspapers and magazines. Um, And that was an interesting process. This project took so long that when I first started it, those resources were not digitized. They were on microfilm. And so I would go in and know that Porgy and Bess played in this city around this time period, and I'd go into that city's black press, that city's black newspaper, and look up to see what it had written about Porgy and Bess. But as, the, as time wore on, those resources became digitized, and so I could do keyword searches on the major national black newspapers, the Chicago Defender, the Pittsburgh Courier, the New York Amsterdam News, and that changed a lot because I found all sorts of new evidence and debates among uh, journalists and opinion writers in the black press that I hadn't found before. And in fact, it actually changed my argument um, in some cases, particularly around the novel. I found more reviews of the novel Porgy, both in white newspapers and in black newspapers, that made for a much kind of richer, more complicated debate that was taking place about the authenticity of that novel's portrayal of its black characters. Um, Certainly later also around the movie, my initial research on the MGM film suggested that it wasn't particularly controversial, that it wasn't, people didn't love the movie, but that it wasn't a a major source of debate, and that turned out to be absolutely wrong. It was a huge source of debate, Mm -hmm. and uh, so that was eye-opening, the the digitization of those particular resources. The Charleston material I was able to add largely because the South Carolina Historical Society has the papers of both DuBose Hayward and his wife Dorothy, and they are very extensive papers. Every bit of correspondence, every lots and lots of newspaper clippings, royalty statements, you name it, they kept everything that had to do with Porgy and Porgy and Bess, and so that was a real treasure trove for the Charleston material as well. And the memoirs you refer to? 
Uh, some of the performers had memoirs, and also actually the memoirs came in handy for the Charleston interludes as well, two in particular. One by Septima Clark, who was an uh, African-American activist and educator in Charleston. And the other, which was actually the inspiration for the interludes in the first place, was by a woman named Mamie Garvin Fields, who had grown up in Charleston. She had been a teacher there. She's actually the grandmother of the historian Barbara Fields, and uh, she wrote an incredible memoir of, of her life in Charleston. And when I read that, I realized there was this rich alternative story of black Charleston that Porgy and Bess had in no way captured, and that's what inspired me to add that material in the first place. So I recently visited Charleston and did the requisite tours, and this use of history for tourism obviously continues and is thriving. Um, your section in the 19, of, of the 1920s describes how white residents wanted to capitalize on the success of the novel and the play to promote tourism and revitalize their, seri- their city. Can you elaborate on this? How exactly did they manage to do that? Well, it was a fascinating kind of um, moment. In the 1920s, a group of uh, elite white Charlestonian, uh, you know, longtime citizens decided that um, one way to try and revive the city's economic fortunes was through tourism. They were actually pretty far-sighted in this. And so, the, and for them, tourism could uh, very easily take the form of historic preservation. So there was a real move to start preserving many of the um, revolutionary era, colonial era, and revolutionary era buildings in downtown Charleston, which had miraculously many of them survived the Civil War unscathed and were still standing. Um, because after the Civil War, you know, the, Charleston was this kind of antebe- you know, colonial and antebellum major city of the American South. After the Civil War, it never really revived. The population never really went back up that high again. It, it didn't have much in the way of economic uh, development. And so preserving these historic buildings and promoting tourism around them, there was also a phenomenon at that point of wealthy northerners buying houses in Florida or Georgia or South Carolina, like to have to be able to go to during the winter. So they were kind of had their eyes on that as well. And then, you know, Hayward's novel comes along in 1925 and, and makes this really big national splash. It was sort of, a, you know, recognized in national literary circles and reviewed in northern papers. And it's kind of this coincidence. And then one of the other, in addition to preserving houses around this time, I think it's in the early 30s, a group of white Charlestonians forms a group called the Society for the Preservation of Spirituals to preserve the music, the African-American music, the Gullah music, the Gullah culture was a particular kind of creolized um, culture unique to the South Carolina and Georgia Sea Islands and the Low Country. And indeed, in the 1927 production of Porgy on Broadway, they use lots of spirituals. They were sort of interspersed in the play itself to suggest, you know, this is sort of the authentic culture Mm -hmm. of these characters and these people. Um, So it all kind of came together. And in the 50s, your book, The Strange Career of Porgy and Bess, describes the 50s revival and the U.S. government taking advantage of this by supporting an international tour of the production, pretty much as a form of propaganda, right? Um, And you say that the actors understood that by participating in the play, they were advancing a political cause, even if they were not political people. Right. I mean, that's uh, Porgy and Bess was one of the earlier State Department-sponsored cultural tours. Uh, in the er- very early 1950s, the State Department, this is the early Cold War years, the State Department decides to start sponsoring um, American cultural groups to go perform over, ar- around the world, mostly in Europe at this point. 
as part of the kind of hearts and minds war of the Cold War, like, you know, this is what's great about America. And, in, and it started with groups like ballet companies and orchestras with the, uh, with the notion of, well, you know, that seems to be the province of Russian culture, right? Ballet and symphonic classical music, that seems very European, very sort of that's what Russia does. And Ameri- what do Americans know about that? So it was a way to kind of prove that America had this kind of highbrow cultural pedigree and credential as well. With Porgy and Bess, though, it took on the propaganda value also came, it came partly in promoting Gershwin as this indigenous American composer who had done wonderful music that people loved, but also in promoting the professional accomplishments of the cast members. So that production and the way the State Department and in the, under the guise of the U.S. Information Service presented it was not this is an accurate or authentic depiction of black life in Charleston. They said, no, this is what it used to be like. And look how far America has come in its race relations because here are these professional, trained, incredibly talented actors doing these parts. So what you see on stage is that's the old America. Here's where America is now when it comes to racial equality. And, and so the performers, you know, part of the propaganda wasn't just what they were doing on stage every night. It was what they were doing off stage. It was the kind of diplomatic events and the, con- and the recitals they would do and just generally being out in public, being incredibly well-dressed, doing these interviews and meeting people. And that was the bulk of the propaganda value. And so do you think that there's something we should be thinking about this version of Porgy and Bess at this historical moment? I think it is an interesting um, continuation of the way in which African Americans have kind of reclaimed this show that starts early on. I mean, obviously, it's a complicated relationship. African American performers sing this show and perform in this show and love performing it. It's it's incredible music. It is it's a really wonderful piece of culture and that's a big reason why it's endured as long as it has. But in starting in the 50s, black jazz musicians started doing interpretations of the music, instrumental interpretations of the music. So there's a very famous um, album by Miles Davis. Um, there's lots and lots of them if you are interested in that. Almost everybody has covered this music at some point or reinterpreted it. And so in some ways I see this as, a, as in that tradition of every generation wants to both kind of rescue and reshape Porgy and Bess and make sure that it doesn't get lost to contemporary sensibilities. We really look forward to reading The Strange Career of Porgy and Bess. It's come out at such a, a, a terrific moment with the success of Broadway production as well. We hope that your book has as much success as the productions have had of Porgy and Bess. Thank you so much, Ellen Noonan. Thank you.